Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. The views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. First off, happy recent birthday to Harriet Seiler, our super spreader of the single payer gospel. (laughs) Big thanks to Harriet. I want to be like you when I grow up, Harriet. And, And thanks again to everybody who opened up their wallets for forward radio during the gift for good, uh, pledge drive. We exceeded our goal. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. We're recording today's program, October the 14th. 216,000 have died in the U.S. as a result of COVID-19. And just looking at a couple headlines here recently, we see the difference between the privileged and the rest of the U.S., on the privileged side, the healthcare industry, including insurers, are faring pretty well. United Health Group posted its highest profits ever in the second quarter at $6.6 billion, highest net margins in the second quarter also for drug companies and hospitals. Another example. Orlando Health, an eight-hospital system, second quarter profits, two hundred or two point seven billion bucks. They received eighty-two million in taxpayer pandemic bailout funds. And HCA Healthcare is giving back one point six billion of federal bailout money. The bailout money represented 55% of HCA's profits in the second quarter. Their CEO, well, he received $26.8 million in his first uh, year there. And as you recall, HCA is the, uh, the former hospital group where Rick Scott paid... $1.7 billion in fines. Then there's the rest of us, the Commonwealth Fund. We got a total of 17.6 million affected individuals who lost their employee-sponsored insurance because of COVID-19. Gene, NPR did a story Friday, and one of every four rural households had been unable to get medical care for serious problems. You've got the higher uninsured rates among rural Americans, hospital closings in rural areas, uh, and 80% of rural black and Latino populations are facing serious financial problems. You know, our president, he flew in the helicopter over to Walter Reed he wouldn't charge anything. I saw a story in the New York Times yesterday 
that a woman up in Philadelphia, her doctors sent her to another hospital 20 miles away, and she got a bill for 52000 bucks for that uh, ride. <clears throat> it is what it is. Dr. Flynn, Dr. Shively, what's on the agenda for today's show? Well, let me begin with the usual disclaimer that uh, <clears throat> the views expressed by me on this program do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville, where I have the status of uh, an emeritus professor. The same for me, that my views do not represent the, the views of Taylor Regional Hospital, nor the University of Louisville and the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. So our guest today is uh, Wayne Tuxen. Uh, Wayne is a practicing surgeon, a colorectal surgeon, uh, not practicing as much as he, he was before. And I just learned uh, Wayne and I go way, way, way back. We, we were both on the, on the staff of the VA hospital back in the uh, back in the 90s, uh, I, I ran the tumor uh, conference down the, back there for about 10 years, and Wayne was one of my go-to presenters. Uh, he's past president of the Greater Louisville Medical Society, has his own uh, TV program on KET uh, dealing with health issues. Uh, so Wayne, uh, we appreciate your willingness to, to 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 be with us today and 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 discuss a number of issues. Uh, we're we're hoping that uh, uh, we and our listeners uh, get a better appreciation of some of the health issues and how it affects the uh, black population uh, in Louisville. And uh, what we've done with with our earlier uh, Zoom guests is give them an opportunity in the beginning. Uh, to either lay out a series of issues that they'd like to discuss or make whatever statements you'd like to make about this, this issue in a broad sense, and then we'll just carry on with, uh, with a conversation. Well, Mike, thank you very much. I appreciate you and Gene, and uh, nice to meet you, Mark, for giving me the opportunity to be here. Um, obviously, one guy is not going to speak for the entirety of the African-American experience, but I think I can represent uh, certain generalities about what's affecting us all. I will tell you that I think one of the impressive things about the COVID-19 uh, is that it has writ large the inequities that are present in the American healthcare system as far as it affects minority populations and specifically African Americans. Um, it, it is just amazing. And I, I must admit, I'm somewhat dismayed by how many of us have said, I did not know how bad the situation was. Well, I can't really understand why the impact has been so bad on the African-American community. And to that, I got to say, what did you expect? You have a group of people who, through redlining, were isolated into certain neighborhoods. Uh, their economic input and or what the revenues were purposely decreased, and you can argue based upon the types of jobs that they're eligible to get, and also where they could work and the amount of work they had to do. And then you had the access to healthcare systems, you had problems as far as educational systems. So the fact that we wind up with this thing where we find that African Americans are bearing a disproportionate brunt of the COVID-19, it's not a surprise. It's sort of like the culmination of, if you tried to plan it, I don't think anybody could have planned it as well as what we did, but that is what we're seeing right now. 
so you put this together, and then we have the confluence of the uh, criminal justice system. Again, it's one of those things where people say, I did not know how bad it was. Well, how long have we had videos of civil rights demonstrators back in the 60s being beaten by the police? How long have we had police officers carrying? And then how long have we had videos? You can go back from the Rodney King all the way up to this guy in Cincinnati who gets shot by a police officer there. I mean, th this is nothing new. <laughs> We've been talking about this. But <laughs> once again, we're sitting here saying, oh, my, what a problem we have to deal with. And rather than saying how we're going to address the problem, both for health care and as far as the criminal justice system, we're blaming people for venting their anger and their frustrations as though they are the cause of the problem. No, they're just reflecting the issues that are before them. Well, hopefully some of the things we talk about uh, today will give some of our listeners a better understanding of, of these. Uh, Gene, you want to start off with your, your get the ball rolling here? Well, <clears throat> this morning uh, uh, we're in the Senate Judicial Committee is a uh, interviewing a lady who is supposedly going to be our next Supreme Court justice. And one of the big issues is the ACA, so-called Obamacare. And they're talking about repealing Obamacare. Can you just talk a little bit about what repealing the Obamacare would do to people with lack of access and not only, uh, in the United States, but also in Kentucky, rural Kentucky, and the uh, parts of uh, Louisville that are predominantly uh, neighborhood is uh, Afro-Americans. Well, you know, I am amazed. I'm all for repealing and doing something if you've got a better plan. Unfortunately, the other side has no plan. I think when we look at the Affordable Care Act and what it provided to African-Americans and other minority populations, the number of people who went from not having health insurance. In Kentucky, we got down to almost 6% of our population. We were one of the top 10 states which had decreased the number of individuals who were uninsured. Again, I think that low number hit about 6%. So, what does Affordable Care Act meant to people? If you look at people in terms of emergency room use, it went down. Number of people getting screened for various things like colon cancer, cervical cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, those numbers went up. Patients who were being more adherent with their diabetes medications, that improved. So you had patients who before were not going to their physicians, but now all of a sudden were going to their physicians. All of those sorts of things got better. So clearly we know that the Affordable Care Act, now here in Kentucky, we call it what, Connect, and th this was a huge, huge success. To turn our backs on this makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever, just by looking at the numbers. Now, now let's go back. It, you know, in 1972, there was an article written by then Chairman of the Department of Surgery, Howard, uh, a guy named LaSalle LaFall, and he talked about one of the major issues as far as cancer in African-Americans is access to care. And even then they made a point of saying, if African-Americans had equal access to care, biases would probably still interfere in the type of care they got. All right, 1986, 1985, Margaret Hexler, then Secretary of Health and Human Services under Reagan. I think that we can say safely that Mr. Reagan was not a big fan of African-Americans, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, his health care commission, they identified 
six different diseases that accounted for 80% of the increased mortality rate in African-Americans compared to whites. And one of the things they came out with and said is one of the reasons why African-Americans had a higher death rate from diabetes and heart disease was access to health care. And therefore, we need to look at a way of improving the insurance for these individuals. And then, I'm sorry, let me just take a step back and go back to 1948 with Truman doing his inaugural address. He said that it was time for us to have, I know this is probably something you guys are familiar with, it was time for us to have a universal health care, not so much just to provide care for all Americans, but because one million American men were not eligible for the draft because of their health conditions. He saw it as a national defense problem. So, you know, so now, so all of a sudden we come up to now and we know that there's this precedent where people keep saying over and over again, we have to have access, we have to have insurance for everybody. The Affordable Care did this. Now, you can argue, did it cost a lot of money? Yeah, it did. It's going to cost a lot of money. But every investment up front, their upfront costs. What people fail to do is look at the downside, how much money we have saved in insurance premiums, how much money we've saved by keeping people at work as opposed to having them get sick. So there is a trade-off. And you look at all, you know, everybody said, this is going to be a big jobs killer. We always like to think about how Rogers out there, I think he's fifth congressional, congressional district. You know, you look at all the jobs that were created at small rural hospitals. Because when those rural hospitals started being able to have more money coming in, they were paying people. They're bringing in secretaries, dietitians, nurses, and even bringing in other physicians. And these people were spending money in those communities, which meant that banks, hardware stores, grocery stores, et cetera, were being flushed with cash. And that money was passed down. Looking at, and I mentioned how Rob's, because looking at the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, that would have cost 22,000 jobs in his district alone. Just think of the financial hit. All those benefits that we were seeing, gone. So to answer your question, Gene, yeah, Affordable Care Act meant a lot, not only in terms of improving access to health care, improving health statuses, but also the financial status of the communities in which we all live. Okay. <clears throat> Wayne, in, in following up with that in, in this kind of same train of thought, can you uh, kind of give us an idea or an outline of, of the, the sort of details of, of, of health care coverage in, in West Louisville or in the African-American community, just, you know, sort of breaking it down. you got private health insurance, you have Medicare, Medicaid, what percentage are uninsured and who's underinsured? And if, you, if yeah. you've got that, just an idea about that, I know there's a lot of, a lot of details, but uh, give, give us a sense of where, where they sit compared to maybe the rest of the city. Let us first off begin by saying, the majority of people are employed. They are working. Now, are they getting a living wage? No. But we're not, you know, so often we're talking about we're giving a handout to people who are too lazy to go out. You know, Bevan said that we're going to put a work requirement on people continue getting uh, the expanded Medicaid. That's an insult because the people were working. They were already out there doing the jobs that they're supposed to do the best that they could. So the majority of patients, unfortunately, out there in that area are Medicaid patients. You do have Medicare, but you do have a large number of Medicaid. You have a spattering of folks. I can't give you the statistic on because I don't have that on my head right yeah, now. I apologize. But we do have individuals with, prime, you know, with um, insurance from the 
you know, you, you talked about United Healthcare. United Healthcare does have a presence, as does Anthem. But some of those folks are folks who are working with some of the larger employers. As you know, the trend now, though, is to not necessarily employ the people, but call them uh, consultants or, uh, or, or um, like they do with Uber. Um, you know, you're, you're working for some of these tempo yeah, agencies. Contract workers. Contract workers and yeah. who are not eligible to the benefits of yeah, things. Exactly. So therefore, they're stuck on their own yeah. with these things. But no, the, the, the Medicaid clearly has a high price, just like it does in the south side of Louisville. It's almost the exact same thing. The yeah. difference is you have a white population versus a black population. They all kind of work the same jobs. Um, difference is where folks are living. Now, so again, you as you know, we we are here because we're promoting uh, single payer Medicare mm -hmm. for all. So, uh, can you give us a, an idea or a sense of uh, the understanding or an appreciation in the African American community of have where have what what that would mean to them? I mean, is that something they have an understanding about? Uh, I know now. Uh, people have been going, you know, they're, they're voting, they're voting, they're really going at it. So somebody's got to think about, you know, health care is a big issue. But, um, you know, single payer, a lot of this stuff goes away. I yep. mean, this, this is really the best way to do it. And 30 of uh, the other first world countries in the world have all figured out ways to do that. So again, the question is, You've got mostly a Medicaid population. You know, again, what's their their sense of understanding, appreciation? Would they, would are they supporting this, and do they understand what it would mean in terms of their own health care? I think when we look at the enrollment when Connect first rolled out here in Kentucky, I think we can see that the African American community was willing and ready to sign up for these healthcare measures. Right now, across the country, the uninsured rate in African-American community is 13.6%, exceeded only by the Hispanic population, which is about 25%. So folks are ready to do that. And folks understand because, and this is the, the damning thing of poverty. And it's even worse when you're doing working at a below living wage job. Um, the cost of medications can be prohibitive. So individuals who should be taking their medicines on a regular basis, having to alter how they're going to do that, making decisions on purchasing food, rent, and heat. Though we talk about this, and it's almost become a stereotype, you, know, you both know that you've had patients that have come to you and say, okay, doc, you tell me which one you want me to do. Which one you want to pay for? Medicines, you want me to pay for... My, my kid going to school, you want me to pay for rent? You tell me. I, got, I can't do everything. So clearly, and I think folks get it, folks understand that getting health care can mean the difference between literally living and dying. And if they did not understand that before, this episode with the coronavirus, and we look at the large numbers of African Americans who are dying at a much higher rate than whites, and many of them because they can't get access to health care. And we know they can't afford the medications because their health plans aren't going to pay for the same medications that the great pumpkin sitting in Washington, D.C. is getting. <laughs> hey, Jane, go ahead. Yeah. 
<laughs> one of the things that uh, I don't quite understand is I understand the uh, mandate, uh, uh, but why uh, do so many, uh, I guess, Republicans think that the ACA is now unconstitutional? I watched a little bit of the hearing yesterday in the Senate, and I didn't get it. I, I've I've read a little bit about it. I've read the Constitution. I don't understand why the ACA now is considered unconstitutional. Do you have any idea where they're coming from? Gene, and I don't want to sound glib, and I don't want to sound as mean-spirited as this will sound. One simple word, racism. Okay. If you take the fact that it was done by Barack Hussein Obama out of this. We don't have this discussion. I mean, how else can we go from having a governor Republican in Massachusetts institute almost the exact same plan to the applause of everyone and then large portions of that are taken and put in almost whole cloth into the Affordable Care Act and everybody suddenly condemn it including the guy who developed the plan in Massachusetts. <laughs> it boggles your mind. I mean, and, and I think we know that a small mind like our current resident at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, he seems to have, let's face it, man, he has got a bone out for Obama. He, I mean, he still wants to persecute this man. Really, I say this, anything Obama has done, this man has tried to destroy. He wants Barr to arrest him. <laughs> and, 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 and I can't imagine the amount of time and energy this guy. So I, I honestly think, I honestly think that that's bomb. That's number one. Number two, I, and I, there's also, I don't see the, this concept of fiscal conservative, being a fiscal conservative, again, like we want to, we don't want to spend this kind of money. We don't want to make this investment in people because what it's going to do to our deficit. Well, I think clearly we've seen the Republicans are more than willing to spend money and drive the deficit up since we are now at a record deficit. I mean, let's face it, they don't have any problem with that. I, I also tend to think that they probably benefit more from the support. And I hate to say that because I don't know 100%, but you would, based upon actions, they have done things to make sure, even when George W. was in and he put that donut hole as far as, you know, pills, and they bowed to the pharmaceutical industry by saying that Medicare could not, like the VA does, could not negotiate prices. I mean, that's almost absurd. Every country in the world negotiates prices for medications, and we don't. And, and so... So to answer your question, why do Republicans hate the ACA? You know, I mean, I could say they don't like people. They don't like the common man or woman. Um, but I, I think that's, that's not fair to them. Perhaps they don't appreciate the amount of people that are helped by this. Perhaps they don't appreciate the cost up front will have a tremendous bearing for people down the road. Uh, they can't see past that immediate dollar fee. So, and I know uh -oh, uh -oh, I think that's what we got. <laughs> FCC. Can, can I just make a, a comment? Go. As far as leg GOP legislators may hate the ACA, but we know that two red states this year or recently 
Missouri and Oklahoma, it was on, it was a referendum to expand Medicaid and the voters of the state voted to expand Medicaid against the wishes of GOP-led legislatures. And as you guys know, you look at two states, Arkansas and Kentucky. Arkansas didn't institute uh, expanded Medicaid or the ACA. Kentucky did. And look at the health outcomes. Arkansas continued to plummet. Kentucky got better. We got better in almost every indices you want to look at. I mean, clearly, it makes a difference. So what these guys want to do right now, they've done, what have they done? They've repealed Medicaid expansion by changing financing. They put barriers up for people to get care. They've done away with the marketplaces. Um, you know, everything you can think of to do, they're laying the groundwork. And then what I thought was the most absurd thing that they did when Obama was still in office, when you took away the mandate that everybody had to pay in. Everybody, it's like, this is a whole novel idea. Who ever heard of us doing such a thing? Except for Social Security and Medicare. We all pay into that system. So why would we not want to everybody do this? Well, I, I think it's very clear. And I, 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 I agree with your first comment. I think a lot of this has to do with wanting to dismantle things that Obama did. Now, what was Mitch McConnell's first, one of his classic <laughs> comments? My job is to make sure that he, you know, Obama has a one a one term presidency, which which he didn't. Um, I'm only hopeful that uh, that, uh, you know, McGrath gets in, but we'll see. Now, let me let me go back a little bit to, uh, you know, your comments about uh, money, uh, social issues and health care. I'll tell you a little story, tell a little story <clears throat> and then find out if things are still the way they were. Uh, back in the 90s, I uh, ran a, um, the breast care center at the Brown Cancer Center. And, uh, and along with um, Connie Sorrell, who was the director and still is of the Kentucky Cancer Program, um, in the west, western part of the state, and the man who was the administrator of the cancer center at the time, we went up to Frankfurt to a certificate of need and got approval for um, a van to drive around and do mammograms. <clears throat> and this was funded by the Kentucky Cancer Program. Mm -hmm. And this was taken out to West Louisville to do mammograms. And, and, and uh, yeah, it, it didn't get a really good turnout. And uh, so Connie... Uh, <laughs> set me up with a bunch of, uh, of, of, of talks that I would uh, get dressed up in my, my suit and tie on Sunday evening and drive into the churches in West Louisville. And, and it'd be often in the basement and they'd have a dinner or reception or something, which I didn't go to. But then I came in at the end and I would talk about the benefits of, of getting mammograms so you could have an early diagnosis of breast cancer. And, and it was, it was kind of it was a very pleasant experience. They were all very nice to me. But one of the things I learned and I was told over and over again was that the healthcare issue, because of the social issues, the worries about getting your children to school and back school, back from school without getting, getting killed and, and the finances and getting food on the table and all of those issues, uh, Healthcare just was not at the top of the list. And in fact, in many cases, is at the bottom of the list. 
So um, uh, uh, the question is, uh, is that still as much of an issue now as it was back in the 90s? Because um, uh, it, 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 it was just hard to get people to come out and get a mammogram that was free. A couple of things there that you point out. First of all, I'm trying to figure out what a head and neck surgeon is doing running a breast clinic, man. That's kind of extending it down. I've heard of the neck going down long, but that's, that's amazing to me. That's okay. Well, I started off as a surgical oncologist. And, oh, okay. And, all right. Then you migrated up. I gravitated to a to yeah. an head and neck surgeon. Okay. I got you now. All right. All I can right. understand all that. All right. Thanks, Wayne. Now, now then, the uh, are you familiar with the TV show, the old TV show Cheers? Yeah. yeah, remember, and what and they had a tagline on Cheers is where everybody knows your name. And so what that implies is a certain familiarity. You can go into a place where people look, talk, feel and know as you and every, you don't have to explain yourself. It's like, hey, OK, there's certain barriers. That's that cultural problem that so, you know, when you when you're around a group of similars or people who appreciate all those cultural distinctions go away. You know, we all become one people. African-Americans, I must admit, if you look at who is providing the healthcare to them, the American healthcare system is very suspect in what it has done to and for African-Americans over time. Yeah, yeah. So there is a level of distrust. What are they really into with me for here? If you look at how we have studied problems, and I, like I started off, we have studied a lot that we'll come in and study people but we're not going to do anything about it. So the question I'm sure some people might have had, so if I go in here, what are they going to do with the mammogram information? What happens if it's a positive mammogram? Are they going to treat me? Who's going to treat me? And where am I going to go for this treatment? So there's a certain, there's a level of distrust, which I must admit is kind of healthy when you think about it, when you go back and look at the total experience that, uh, that African-Americans have had. The next thing is this. If you remember Harold Freeman, who used to be um, American Cancer Society president, he had a paper that came out talking about the life expectancy. This was back in the 90s, 80s and 90s, I think it was, uh, right at that cusp. The average life expectancy for an African-American in Harlem was 55 years. In Harlem, New York City, 55 years. If you look at the life expectancy of African American, we always tend to be lower, especially African American men, around 67, 68. Sometimes, you know, when you are faced with a lot of other problems and you know you're not going to live long anyway, why worry about healthcare? So you said to say, I want you to get a mammogram so that you don't develop a cancer five years down the road that's going to kill you in 10 years. Well, hell, I'm hungry today. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hungry today. <laughs> And, 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 and you can understand that because it's just like that coal miner out in eastern or western Kentucky whom you tell, look, man, you're going down in that mine and you're breathing in all that coal dust and you're going to get black lungs. Oh, yeah. And you're smoking, too, which is just going to make that whole situation worse. So we've come in here to tell you, don't do all that. And he says, look, we're going to stop these kinds of jobs and bring in different jobs. He said, but this is all I can do. I got to worry about eating and feeding my family today. I can't worry about that down the road. It's the exact same frame of mind. So I don't find it as a problem in the community. I think it's very, being very realistic when they're saying, I appreciate this, you're doing this, but tell me how I'm going to eat tomorrow. How am I going to pay my rent tomorrow? Yeah. Once, you know, healthcare sometimes becomes a luxury when you got to put, again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. When you got to pay rent, you got to pay food, you got to pay a heating bill, you got to ask yourself, 
who always gets put off last? And as you know, in the African-American community, African-American women always sacrificing for their families. And they do without so that the kids can do with. Well, and, that, and that's why I, I asked you that earlier question about single-payer health care, because all of the all of the issues of, of high <clears throat> high insurance bills or the the, the 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 hassle of Medicaid or whether you have to have a job or have to prove that you're you're looking for a job or all that stuff goes away and yeah. uh, it, it really is a, a great opportunity yeah. to make sure that everybody will get health care and you know hopefully that's that's appreciated. Gene, I think you've got something you want to Yeah. Are there other issues other than access to care, the reason that Afro-Americans have a uh, higher mortality rate? And uh, or is there, are, are there genetic factors? Or are there something else that, uh, that can af affect their uh, long-term uh, life expectancy? You know, Gene, yeah, uh, the number one genetic factor is being black on a sunny day. Uh, let's say <laughs> so. <laughs> because, you know, that is one of those things you can't hide. The moment an African-American walks into an office and uh, there's a perception that is oftentimes made. I remember once sitting in the, in, in the physician's lounge, because uh, I'm going to get into implicit bias. I'm going, I was sitting in the lounge, uh, surgical lounge at one of our area hospitals. And on the TV screen came an image of two young African-American women who were dressed, I'm sure, to their point of view, very nicely. And obviously, they took care in their hair and the clothing that they wore. It wasn't what I would appreciate, mind you, but it was what they had on. Then, right underneath of that, this is one of these shows, I think Jerry Springer, it may have been the show, or something like, of that ilk. And underneath of it said, I have a secret. And immediately... Uh, there was a gentleman sitting next to me who was an OBGYN physician, white. He said, I'm tired of these welfare cheats being on TV and I don't want to see this. And I turned to him and I was amazed. I said, sir, you are quite clairvoyant. Just by, we didn't have the sound on, by the way, on this thing. I said, you have determined just by the mere appearance of these two young ladies that number one, they were on welfare and number two, they were cheats. Now, imagine you were a young woman, African-American, going into his office for obstetrical care. How inviting do you think they would be? How do you think he would approach these patients? So this concept of implicit bias is real. We've seen it through the VA studies where you remove the race of the individual, suddenly everybody gets the same level of catheterizations, heart care, pain medications. But as long as the person knows the race of an individual, suddenly the number of patients that get catheterizations, suddenly the number of patients getting heart procedures and the medication, it changes. Blacks get less, whites get more. Uh, we, we have really got to address this. And, 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 and people say, well, I'm not racist. You have to be anti-racist. You have to call out. We have to call out our colleagues when we see them doing the wrong thing. So that's number one. Number two, where do African-Americans tend to live? We live in, generally speaking, in the worst neighborhoods. Uh, the air pollution is higher. Here in Louisville, what they want to do, they want to put another highway through the west end of Louisville so it didn't have to go around the east end where the predominantly population is white. 
but they're willing to put more air, more pollution into that side. So that's another one. We want to put a, a digester to break down food products and everything in the West End. Never tell me how good it is, but I didn't see anybody from the East End saying, yeah, we'll take this thing out there so we can pollute our air and water or have increased truck traffic. No, they wanted it on the West side of town. We look at the um, build environment. There's no place to walk. There's no tree coverage. Where's the canopy? Where are the parks where people go? Where we know people who are exposed to trees and parks for recreation, it lowers stress and improves the air quality. But you don't have all that stuff out there. And then you have a food desert in the west end of town, which you can also extend somewhat to Portland. So people don't have access to good quality food. And then transportation. Transportation to the one area of town where people have the fewest number of cars is the poorest. So we're not making it easy for people to go and see their physicians, et cetera, et cetera. So, Gene, yeah, there, there are several problems. Some of, and as far as biological, to my knowledge, outside of a few things like sickle cell disease, um, and you can argue about some things about uh, early colon erectile cancers, there are very, very few genetic differences between us that would account for the huge differences in survival for most diseases, besides just poor health. Yeah, Wayne, now we're going to have a quick stop here. Mark has got a shtick he wants to do. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That, that's fine. That's fine. You're listening to Single Payer Radio on WFMP 1065 with doctors Mike Flynn, Gene Shively, and our guest, Dr. Wayne Tuxen. Wayne, uh, let's uh, kind of switch horses here and go to another public health issue. Um, gun violence. Um, two or three years ago, um, I went to a, a surgical grand rounds. I can't remember exactly who did it. It was either Keith Miller or, or, or Matt Benz. But one of the things I learned there was that in Louisville, um, in the West End, the predominant gun death were young African-American men killing each other and in the east end is middle-aged and all white men <laughs> killing themselves <laughs> so um you know let's leave the east end alone <laughs> because that's a whole other issue but you know so what you know is, it, is the issue gangs uh, you know access to access to guns family supervision or you know the relationship between the black community and the police or all of the above. So, you know, that's, a, you know, that's an important issue because we're, we're aside from some of our uh, other things going on here, we're, we're going off the charts with people killing each other in one end of town or the other. Or well, first, now, first off, you're absolutely right. We, we too often forget that violence is a public health issue. And right now you can argue that Gun violence is a public health crisis. Yes. Now, unlike you, I'm not going to separate West End and East End. I'm going to come back to that. Here's the thing that's fascinating to me. There is this argument about defund the police. Uh, and you hear all these people talking about how absurd this is. We're going to defund. First off, no one has yet, to my knowledge, actually defined what defund the police actually means. And number two, when people do comment about it, it is saying we have to get the police out of doing social services work and mental health work. That's what it comes down to. Surprisingly, 
Do you remember, the, so Joe Biden is catching hell about his support for that crime bill that came back in, what, 92, 93, put forward by Bill Clinton. 49% of white people were in favor of that crime bill when it first came out. 58% of the African-American community was in favor of that crime bill. People seem to think that African-Americans don't want people to get tough on crime. They do. In fact, we are one of the most conservative groups when it comes down to trying to get rid of crime of anybody. You look at, um, in, in D.C., my hometown, they passed a very restrictive gun law limiting who could get guns. Congress, which has the ability to oversee everything that happens in the District of Columbia, that's why it's called the last colony still, they overruled it. And so that gun legislation didn't go into place. Why is that important? 72% of African-Americans want some kind of gun control legislation. 72%. Only 40% whites do. African-Americans know the impact of gun violence and want to do something about it. Now, so let's talk about this. You know, more people, let's see, I'm going to give you the number. There were 1,342 African-Americans killed by guns in 2020, so far, so far. But there have been 2,589 whites. That's by, I'm sorry, that's by police. That's police, excuse me. The homicide thing, that's what I want. I'm sorry, the homicide. 22,000 people were killed by suicides and 11,000 homicides. Now just think about that. It's a two to one ratio of suicide to homicides in the United States. Now you're gonna tell me this is not a gun issue? Because the predominant way we're saying, like you said, it's middle-aged white men who have blown their own heads off. This is a violence problem. And for us to sit down and go, okay, yeah, but we're not going to talk about that. And I know that's not what you meant. But we're not going to talk about this in terms of gun control issues. Because remember, when somebody dies, that's a family that's either left without someone who's contributing financially. They've got to bury this individual. There's the emotional strain and loss. And there's the loss of taxes, if you want to look at it from that cold point of view. Uh, 11,000 homicide? Yeah, that's, that's huge. That's huge. As far as why? Well, let's see. If you've got a group of people who are disenfranchised from the rest of us, they have, they've been told that they're no good, have no hope of advancement, get treated as second-class citizens in every way, and they live in tight, compact environments where everyone they bump into is the same as that, there's a great deal of frustration and anger that's going to be built up. I don't care where you are, you're going to have it. And that is going to lead itself to people when they react, when they're frustrated and angry. If you've got a gun in your hand, you're going to use it on people. Now, clearly, there's some kids right now who just, you know, for lack of a better term, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I apologize, who just, you know, bat poo crazy, man. Now that's how we get COVID-19. I apologize, gentlemen. Um, but but, but who, who, who have seen to be out of control. But why are they out of control? Because we have, is, there, is it just the breakdown of the family unit? Well, that has a part of it. Is it lack of education? Significant part of it. Is it a lack of being felt, made to feel like they are part of the overall community, the whole community? Yeah. I mean, you got all these issues are going on, and we have to address each and every one of them if we want to see this. So, yes, gun violence is a public health crisis that requires a multifactorial approach. 
employment, education, nutrition, even health care. Because when you look at the recidivism rate, it approaches what about 15% of people who get shot once are going to come back again. And that is impacting the resources we have for providing health care to everybody else. Yeah, just to let, let you know, uh, on the 28th of October, we've got Keith Miller from the trauma service at UofL coming on. And, and we're talking, that's exactly what we're going to talk about is gun violence as a public health issue. And I agree with you. I mean, I, 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 I am a strong advocate of gun control. I, I think this country's out of its mind with the amount of guns that are people are running around with. You got these idiots that with the long rifles showing up and, 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 uh, they showed up in Frankfurt outside of the governor's mansion. And uh, they, you know, they, these people are talking about kidnapping the governor of, of um, Wisconsin and the governor of Virginia. I mean, yeah. it's, there's a lot of peep crazy in this country. Mark, just. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me point, point out something else to you. What, what, what I find fascinating, I find a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, so, uh, Mr. Kenneth Walker, who was defending his home to home invaders, that is the boyfriend of Breonna Taylor. Yeah. They didn't know who was coming into this house. Yeah. And he hears his knocking. He is defending his home and he shoots a police officer. He didn't know it was a police officer. And to the point, even the charges now have been dropped. But have you heard one word from the National Rifle Association? in this man's defense and in his support. I have not. Where is Wayne LaPierre on this one? Well, well the good news is the, the attorney general from New York is probably going to put those, you know, going to break that thing up. That, 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 that is just lost in a sea of conflict and, and, and financial and financial issues. Um, most of us uh, white folks, we, we don't think we're racist, but we probably are. And so I have two questions. One, how can we determine if we are racist? And if we are, what can we do about it? Gene, that's a very interesting question. Um, first off, I cannot look into somebody's heart and tell that this person is a racist or isn't a racist. All I can do is look at the actions of that individual and say, these are the actions of a racist. Uh, I'll use the example of the governor of Texas, and, and no, the governor of Florida, DeSantos, uh, where he is blocking people who've served their time for crimes, and disproportionately African-American, from being eligible to, eligible to vote, to vote, to vote. The governor of Georgia, who blocked African-Americans and cleaned out the roles of certain African-Americans so that they could not vote against him while he was secretary of state when he was running for governor. Those are the actions of a racist. Again, I go back. It is not enough to be not a racist. One has to be anti-racist. One is passive. The other one is the active. Uh, for the example, if one is walking past and you see the police beating somebody, do you stop and get involved or do you keep walking on by? It's a difficult thing to do, very difficult thing to do. But let's not be so obvious. If someone comes to you for a job interview 
and you're sitting there with talking to the person, do you immediately lower your expectations of them and you feel that they can't handle the job based upon their physical appearance? That would be a racist move. Do you, if you're a bank person, do you not want to extend a loan to this person to improve their business because of what they look like and where their business is located? That's a racist attitude. If you are a physician and a patient comes in and your first thought is, oh, this person just wants to get pain medication, they don't really have a real problem. That's a racist attitude. So it's the difference between, to me, the anti-racist goes in and says to their colleague when they see them saying, wait a minute, these two people are exactly the same. One is black, one is white. Why did you treat them differently? Why didn't you give this one a loan, but you gave the other one a loan? Why didn't you rent to this person, but you rented to the other person? When all told, all things being equal, they're the same except for their color. That is becoming an anti-racist. And it's very uncomfortable to call out your friends, neighbors, colleagues, and superiors. Very, very uncomfortable to do that. But that's what we have to do. Um, unfortunately, again, since the, uh, you know, the guy who spends $70,000 on hair, I wish he'd spent $70,000, you know, <laughs> on psychological treatment because he, he has released the inner pent up. I'm tired of these people getting ahead as though it were getting ahead. He doesn't, he has painted the world in a win lose. I win, you lose. You must lose in order for me to win rather than win win. Because when we all do well, we all do well. You know, and that's a simple thing. But people see, I've got to push somebody down so I can do better. So consequently, he has allowed the Proud Boys to go forth. He's allowed what took place in Charlotteville, Charlotte, to happen. You know, he's allowed the fact that the governor of Michigan. That's not a racist thing, but but the lieutenant governor, was it there in Michigan or lieutenant governor's wife, who was non-American, was accosted in a grocery store because they said you should go back where you belong. You know, but this guy is is allowing these sorts of things. So that so it takes the anti-racist point. So when McConnell or these other people say I'm not racist, well, yes, you are. If you allowing something to take place, either what is the link they say Lincoln said, either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. It requires like you guys asking yourselves that question, because obviously you've thought about it. And what I doing racist or isn't it a racist act? And I don't want to do that, which is racist. Well, since we're uh, talking about the guy with the spray on tan and the poofy hair, let's move on <laughs> uh, to a to a to a similar issue that that maybe doesn't deal with him directly. But I. I, one of our earlier programs, we had uh, Jess Wright on from U of L Psychiatry, and we talked about mental health in a broad sense. Uh, so I'd I'd like to see if we can get focused a little bit on some of the issues that are uh, of anxiety, depression, mental health issues in the African American community, especially with this pandemic going on. Yeah. Can can you give us a Give us a sense of kind of where that stands. Sure. And, and again, for historical perspective, in 1793, the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, 10,000, I'm sorry, 10% of the population of Philadelphia died. 
20,000 of Philadelphia's finest, the wealthy and the physicians, left the city. And they said that poor whites, enslaved, and free African Americans had to stay behind. The thought was that they were immune to yellow fever. So you had people who were educated, wealthy class, got the devil out, and they left behind all the people there. And what were they doing? They had to do the so-called essential work. And that was the term that was used in, the essential work. And that was burying the dead, taking care of the sick people. So let's fast forward to COVID-19. We have come up with, this is almost like um, that 1984 Orwellian speak, you know, where Reagan used it when he had this giant missile, which he called the peacemaker. <laughs> so we now have taken people who are at the lowest rung of our employment ladder and claimed them to be essential workers. We hailed the essential worker. What this meant was, I want you to continue going into this place where you're risking your life for me to continue my lifestyle. So we have people working in the meatpacking plants. Look at all the number of people in meatpacking plants who came down with COVID-19 and many who died. People who are driving buses. Look in Detroit, the number of bus drivers who died from COVID because people were getting on the bus, but they didn't deem it necessary to wear a mask. Our grocery store workers, and you, we've all seen in the news, on TV and in the newspaper, how many people even don't want to wear a mask when they're coming up to the checkout counter. So we said, but these people have to go to work. They have to go to work. And what I thought was really fascinating was, um, oh, I'm blanking on who it was within the administration said that if these workers don't want to work, especially in the meatpacking plant, they can all be fired and you can bring in what? immigrants to work in the meatpacking plant. <laughs> so I thought that was just a wonderful, that was the Secretary of Labor said this. I thought that was just a wonderful, wonderful statement. So when you look at what's going on as far as African-American community, there's a lot of stress because we know that the highest incidences of death are in the African-American community, high incidences of COVID positivity, African-American community. The drain on that community, and they know that they're told you must social distance. Where are you going to social distance in, in communities like this where you have dense population? You can't. It's just not going to happen. How are you going to tell some people they can't go to work? They don't go to work. They don't get any money. So therefore, they've got to do these jobs, which increase their risk. People are scared to death around COVID-19. And this is why it's causing some of these stresses. Okay. Uh, Wayne, we're getting back down to the, the last five minutes. Gene, you want to okay. get one in before we, before we pull the curtain down? Well, this is not a, a question, but I just got an email just a few minutes ago that said that approximately uh, 28 hospitals in the state of Kentucky may close. If that happens, uh, particularly in rural Kentucky, we're going to be in uh, big trouble. Um, fortunately, the University of Louisville has uh, uh, took on Jewish hospitals like Mary and Elizabeth and Our Lady of Peace. So hopefully Louisville is going to be okay. And we've got the University of Kentucky in Lexington. But uh, losing that many, a large number of rural hospitals is, is going to be a real problem. And the tertiary hospitals in Louisville and Lexington cannot uh, support uh, patients being transferred in constantly. The uh, University of Louisville Hospital and UK Hospital is frequently on diversion. So hopefully uh, we're going to be able to... Um, solve this problem but if we don't uh, i'm afraid we're going to look back a few years from now and say oops why is the uh, uh 
uh, problems in uh, rural Kentucky getting worse? Why is the cancer rate going up and why is our mortality rate increasing in uh, rural Kentucky? So Wayne, uh, we're going to give you a, a, an opportunity to get the last word in here before uh, Mark does his, his uh, final yes. shtick. So <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Let me just say this. Yeah. Um, it, I think COVID-19 addresses the same thing Gene just kind of said, to be honest about it. Do you realize that in the African-American community, 39% African-Americans know someone who died from COVID-19 compared to only 9% in the white population. Therefore, you know, when you have almost 40% of people knowing first-hand knowledge of a problem versus only second or third-hand, it makes a difference in how you act. People don't appreciate the rural health crisis that's in and they're not going to know it until it's too late. When these communities, when somebody has a difficult childbirth, has a heart attack, has an arm cut off or something, and they need immediate care, that's going to be a problem. You know, you're right. Universal health care is the beginning, it is the middle, and it's going to be the end. We've got to break down that number one barrier of cost. I appreciate what you guys do, man, and I thank you for universal health care. Way to go. <laughs> Wayne, and thank you. Uh, this was great, and you look really great in that uh, jacket for the radio. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, <laughs> for more information about Kentuckians for single-payer health care, go to kyhealthcare.org. Uh, you can also follow the group on Facebook. And to support Forward Radio, go to forwardradio.org. Doctors, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bonjour. You know